when I get to a sticky situation where we're trying to figure something out or the athlete's just doing something that's completely off the mark when it comes to nutrition, then the power meter data, heart rate data, it really does give me a, a little bit of a scientific premise to go, hey, here's the reason possibly why you're feeling not 100% at the end of three hour ride. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. And we're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. We're also both researchers in sports nutrition at Monash University, and we love translating the often complex science of sports nutrition into simple and practical strategies. Each week, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists, and triathletes ask, sort of things that people are often debating out on their training run or ride, or talking about in the coffee shop afterwards, or madly typing away on Google late at night trying to figure out what it is that uh, an answer to their question. So we'll break it down, uh, invite a guest expert, uh, usually a researcher or a practitioner, or an athlete or coach um, to prevent their perspective in our two parts of the episode. So how are you going this week, Steph? I know it's been a busy one for you. You had your PhD final milestone. I did. I did. That was, uh, I was a little bit stressed about that one now, um, as you know, um, but, uh, and thank you for coming and listening. Um yeah, so yeah, that that has been done and uh I passed. Woohoo. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. No, you did a great job. Really good presentation. I think really, really nice sequence of studies that sort of come together. So it'll be great. And I think the thesis, because it, they all do come together really nicely, will sort of tell a really good story. If anyone ever wants to read the big chunky thing when it finally gets published, well, probably the electronic one. You'll have a chunky copy for yourself. Everyone else will have to get it online. Yeah, yeah, exactly mm. right, yeah. So you've been uh, unwinding a little bit since then? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, some people have told me, you know, they find, yeah, a couple of days are kind of a bit exhausted after, I think, because you sort of have that build up, right, and you just get a bit nervous because you don't know what the panel might ask you. Um, so, yeah, I was I was a bit, um, a bit tired, but... Uh, yeah, weekend spent relaxing a bit, went out to actually um, Listerfield, which is where Ooh, I did a okay. bit of a mountain bike ride with you some time that ago. That was a while ago, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it was chaos. Like Listerfield, I've never seen it like this. You were lucky to get a car park. Yeah. All of the car parks, just chockers, paddle boards, like bikers, like runners. It was, uh, it was great great to see mm, yeah popular place in summer so did you get out for a bit of a run I did got out for got out for a run uh and then we went in yeah we went in the water after which was really nice um so yeah been been running a bit been getting into the hills um so been needing a bit of a recovery in the water after so yeah last weekend I was in the Warburton um the the creeks down there and now Listerfield so yeah looking for where I'm going to go next weekend what about you what have you been up to well the kids are back at school finally Woo! yeah 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 so uh dropped them off this morning and then quickly yep. came home and put on my cycling kit and went for a ride <laughs> 
<laughs> That's so, so good. Yeah. So that is really good. So oh, yeah, long time has been a very long time, very long yeah. summer. So yes, no good to get them back to school. Obviously, yeah, they missed all awesome. their friends and things. But um, yeah. yeah, equally good to be able to get a bit of time away from them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah, get out outside and not have to be on the. Did you say you, you went for a ride outside? You weren't on the trainer, so that's nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well. Today's episode of The Long Munch is episode 30B. And Steph, what are we talking about today on the episode? So we are talking about how can I use my training data to help my nutrition. So um, previous episode, we had um, the lovely Dr. Trent Stellingworth. Um, uh, so sort of to give us that sort of nice research um, insight. Um, and now we're following that up with a practical um, perspective. So we've got um, Dr. Stephen Lane, who you'll give an introduction to shortly, because um, I know you've um, done some, some work with him in the past, Alan. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. All right, well, let's get into some social media shout outs. Um, do you want to run us through, Steph? Yeah, so Instagram, um, we had Joe Walsh, hopefully I've said that correctly. Um, he was asking for a savoury sports drink recipe. Um, so, um, I mean, there's, a, there's many out there, um, but one of the um, ways you can do it is you can get um, maltodextrin and you can get that um, either health food store, sometimes in the brewery um, places, um, also online um, uh, options as well, um, and you just you can use a tablespoon um, of maltodextrin, so about ten grams, um, and we usually use a tablespoon of that per um, hundred mils um, of of water. Um, so basically, then that's giving you ten grams of carbohydrate per hundred mil, which we would then say is like a ten percent solution. And then add your flavour of choice. So um, a really nice one that a lot of ultra-endurance um, athletes like um, is um, adding a bit of stock powder, um, whether it be chicken, beef, veggie, um, and adding about half a teaspoon um, of the stock powder or half a stock cube. Um, and, and that can give you a bit of a nice, really salty taste as well, which um, a lot of us can look forward to. Um, soup broth yeah, type taste. Exactly. And do and you can have that. Don't think you have to have it warm. Like I often had it in my ultras, um, either option, often cold, um, mm. and it was great. Um, or if you're wanting a bit of a um awakening, um, you could have a squeeze of lemon juice um or um uh, sort of like a mild sort of sugar-free electrolyte tablet that, that you could add. Um, sometimes ginger can be a nice one as well, help reset taste buds that you could add to it. Um, so, yeah, so so that's uh, an option. Yep, so Joe actually sent that through. Um, he went back and listened to our episode with Gemma Sampson uh, around the DIY sports nutrition products. Yep. And in that we mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned in there, Steph, the maltodextrin stock because mm. obviously maltodextrin doesn't really have any flavour. It's not sweet. Yep. So you can use it. It kind of dissolves almost the same as sugar um, but isn't sweet. So you can 
turn it into anything sweet or savory, depending on what you prefer. Um, but I think we said in the podcast we'd post the recipe online and then forgot. <laughs> so he came back and said, oh, can you please post it? Well, we were just seeing if anyone was listening. Yep. Very true. <laughs> so thank you, Joe. <laughs> yeah, um, really handy maltodextrin for, for lots of different things. Um, yeah, and then we also had um, Brenda um, Hutchinson, um, who we both know, Al, and she has asked, and we've had this actually asked before by Scooter, um, asked about transcripts for the podcast. Um We've looked into it a bit, um, but at, at the moment, the, as far as we can see, it does take a fair bit of time in terms of editing and um, we might need to like then pay for someone to get that. Um, I mean, if anyone knows anything different, please let us know. Um, uh, but we, we would love to do it um, and it's definitely something that we... Uh, continuing to look at and and we'll try and do that in the future because um, we know that there are people that do need that. Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. One of the things we've sort of talked about is whether we, you know, start a Patreon at some stage down the track um, and then using the proceeds from that to help with things like this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sort of, up, you know, upgrading all the technology that we use for the podcast but also um, yeah. things like transcripts and so on um, yeah. so we could pay someone to do that because I think you finishing off a thesis and me juggling yeah. five different things and kids, and kids. <laughs> <laughs> does make it a bit problematic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's something, yeah, that um, we we definitely appreciate. That, yeah. um, Awesome. Other feedback, Al? Uh, no, not specifically. This is usually your segment where all your fans <laughs> approach you going to, walking down the street, Steph. Uh, but because you've been so busy with work, you haven't yes. been walking down the street, so no, no one's approached you. <laughs> if I have, I've had my hoodie on because I've been concentrating. <laughs> well, actually, as we'll get to in just a second, people have been approaching you, but for a different reason. We'll get mm. to that in just a minute. Um, but just a reminder, if you have a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, you can find us on social media at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Um, you can ask any questions there that you think uh, might be answered on the show. And certainly we've got a couple coming up in the next few weeks that have been specifically from listener questions. Um, and and also if you just want to give us any other feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, you want more of this, less of that, um, just let us know. We're always happy to hear from people. Um, okay, so Steph, I said uh, you have been getting some uh, feedback from people or, or requests, mm. I probably should say, uh, and that's actually from our colleagues at Monash University. So we've got a few different studies happening, um, either already going uh, and they need some more participants or some that are soon to start. Um, so do you want to run us through sort of the studies that are happening at the moment uh, and then for the um, probably more so runners, I think, for these studies mm. um, or, or triathletes, I guess, if you mm. want to come and run, um, but not so much for cycling at this stage. Yeah. Um, do, do you want to just, just run us through the studies that are going at the moment if people based in Melbourne might want to participate? Yeah, yeah. yep, yep. Um, so I'll go through um, perhaps a, a couple um, in this session and then um, we'll go through some others in, in future episodes. But We've got, uh, I'll talk about two at the moment, um, apart from, of course, Allen's, um, which is the ultra-endurance run, so looking at, um, you know, sodium electrolyte, and then you've got, haha, I was going to say mine, Al, but no, mine no longer. Yours is finished. <laughs> 
Um, although, yeah, no, I did talk about the other one that I'm helping out with um, the other day. So we've got uh, some, I think people will find this interesting. Um, so one of the study questions we've got at the moment is do pre and probiotics re reduce um, gut problems during distance running? Uh, so Alice um, Mika um, is coordinating this, this study at the moment. Um, and so they're studying the impact of eight weeks of supplementation um, with a new combined pre-probiotic supplement um, and looking at the impact of that on gastrointestinal function symptoms and stress response during running um, in a hot environment, so 30 degrees, because we, we need that exertional stress. So they're looking for runners aged between 18 to 55 who are able to complete three hours running at 60% um, maximal effort, effort, so kind of like that easy long run pace. Um, it's usually typically for most people it's about 8 to 10 k's an hour depending on your level of fitness. Exactly, yep, yep. Uh, and there's three visits, so you have your initial, you know, prelim VO2 max test, which only takes about one, one and a half hours, but you get some really cool data from that. Um, and then, um, and then there's um, visit two and, and visit three, so the trial days. Anyway, um, if that is of interest to anyone, um, we will put this up on our um, socials. Um, so then you've got Alice's um, contact details for that one. Um, the other one that she's also um, helping coordinate is how does hydration status affect cognitive function um, in athletes. So again, um, it's for um, distance runners aged between same 18 to 55. Um, and they're looking at different types of rehydration beverages um, on hydration status and cognitive function. Um, and that one there just needing to be able to complete, I say just, um, two hours running again, same intensity, 60% in 30 degrees and, and the humidity is low, it's like 20 to 40%. Um, uh, but they're doing that because they need to also help stimulate the, the sweating. Um, so three vis visits for that one too, Al. Um, so they're the, the two that I mentioned for um, this one, but we'll talk about a youth study that's going on and then some others um, in upcoming e uh, episodes. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So shout out to Alice because she was uh, an undergrad student who helped me out quite a lot in my PhD. Yes, yes. And uh, yeah, now working with us. Now she's graduated as a dietitian, working on, on some other projects with us. It's great. All right. Now, Steph, we had this discussion a couple of weeks ago. We kind of lost our brain a bit somewhere between 2021 and 2022, yeah. came back and recorded the first few episodes and then all of a sudden said, my gosh, we've completely forgotten about a whole segment that we used to do. I know. And we'd left it off completely. Yeah. And this is the segment that often people were looking forward to as well. Yeah. And that's the segment where one of us has a particular dummy. issue usually related to that particular podcast that gets them a bit hot under the collar or a bit frustrated with mm. things that they hear or see on social media or out and about mm. in, in life mm. or online mm. and then we just go oh and you just cringe mm. um and yeah we haven't done it for a while so i think it's time we brought it back yep it's that's true mm. and i have one hour that i reckon you 
agree with me on. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start it and I'm going to let you um, finish it off because you're better at, you know, summarising things um, than me. Um, but this one gets me all the time. Um, it's it's um, people that think going, well, I don't know, I feel that they think going to see a um, sports dietitian is too expensive um and they 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 say you know i i don't know i can't afford it or i can work it out myself um basically so but then they're quite happy to spend money on really expensive stuff like maybe a five thousand dollar or a ten thousand dollar bike or a two thousand dollar bike um or another piece of um equipment or they might spend money on all these supplements that they don't even need and they continue to get and they don't even understand how to use them. Or the one that gets me like a lot because it's the area I work in is um, they've got gut symptoms. So why don't we go and see all these other people that we'll, I'll spend a fortune on and uh, still not get any clear sort of answer or what's going on. And eventually, once they've sort of exhausted all of that, they then come to us. And uh, it gets me. It really does, actually. I'm just hearing myself. I've got to say, Steph, I've, uh, <laughs> I've seen you struggle to get fired up for some of these rants before, but this one didn't take a lot. Yeah, because I just I don't understand it. I just think it's invest you know like it's we know nutrition makes a difference it's and it's not just your sports performance it's your health it's like it's huge and it's long-term effect um so i honestly think it's it's worth the investment anyway um one thing i know is um you know you're good at sometimes you know just giving them a bit of a perspective so like when we think about something like carb loading hour or something like that if we think about the percentage benefit that someone can get from that, um, what are we talking? Yeah, I mean, most studies typically about three or four percent mm-hmm. in terms of you know finish time in yeah. a time trial type effort that's measured in a lab. So yeah, I mean, if you think about what three or four percent of an Ironman time is, or three or four percent of a hundred k ultra, or even a marathon, mm. it's a fair chunk. Um, and it's going to make a difference. And as we talked about back in the carb loading episode, episode 9A and B, most people have no idea how much carbs they actually need to carb load properly or because of the foods that they're choosing, they can't achieve that because they feel like they're pouring concrete into their stomach and they're just so full that they can't actually do the job properly. So, yeah, and I totally agree with you. Uh, What really gets me here is not so much the the percentage performance terms but – Probably more so that you know, in in um, sports like triathlon, you, you know, you might spend hundreds, sometimes over a thousand dollars to enter a race. Um, it costs probably for some cases, you know, to get a, a race nutrition plan, a carb loading plan, probably half that. Yep. Um, and yet, you know, they throw away that race entry fee and have a DNF and a miserable day out because they didn't get it right. So and I totally agree with you. The other rant I was going to have today, which was you know relevant to our discussion last week with Trent and our discussion this week with Stephen, is the amount of money that then gets spent on all those gadgets mm-hmm. to collect all of this data, you know, thousands and thousands of data points that mm-hmm. go into 
training peaks or today's plan or Strava or some combination of those things. And either it just goes in there and gathers dust or it goes in there and people don't know how to interpret it because they don't work with a coach who knows how to interpret it. Um, or again, they're spending all this money on all this data that's meaningless because they can't interpret it when, you know, they could spend a bit of money on the, getting the nutrition right and that would make a far better, bigger difference than just measuring things going wrong. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah you can spend $1,000 to measure things going badly or you can spend a few hundred dollars to make things go right whether you measure it or not. Mm. Yep, yep. Look at that. We, we've we just chucked in a lot of rants there and, like, well, I could just we could just keep going on same like with gut symptoms, right? Don't get that sorted. Like it's ending ending your race. Yep. Oh, that's another episode, Steph. I've got to stop you here. We're going to go on for an hour. The whole okay. podcast could be a rant if, if I don't calm you down, talk you off the ledge. All right. Well, let's move on. So today's episode is episode 30A. How can I use my training data to help my nutrition with Dr. Stephen Lane? So, um, as you said, I've, I've done a little bit of work with Stephen in the past. Um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about his background in the interview, so I won't go into detail here about it now, but um, Stephen's a sports scientist. Uh, he has a PhD in um, looking at the interactions between exercise and nutrition, and he'll describe a bit about what that is, but they were very specific interactions that were being looked at uh, with the Australian Institute of Sport for um, specific, basically, case scenarios for the Olympics. Um, so it was some pretty interesting stuff. Um, he's also the founder and head coach of HP Tech Cycling Coaching, uh, and there's a few coaches that work under that umbrella with him now, uh, and he's sort of gone on to start that business post-PhD. Uh, he's coached several riders at the elite domestic level, and some of those have then gone on to world tour level as well in cycling, so the highest professional level of the sport. Uh, some people might know him for being the coach of Bridie O'Donnell when she broke the women's hour record back in 2016. Uh, and seeing footage of him standing there beside the track. So that was on the velodrome. Um, but he's also an accomplished cyclist himself, uh, which probably people who live around Melbourne will know, Stephen, from the from his, his own exploits as a cyclist. He's a time trial specialist in particular, um, but more recently got into some of the ultra-endurance off-road riding as well, which we'll chat to him about in this interview because it's obviously a completely different um, aspect of the sport. Um, but yeah, he's certainly been been doing a lot of riding for a lot of years um, at the the local scene um, at a very high level here in Melbourne and, and in in Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's um, as we'll hear, cut off a fair amount of hours off of some of those ultra endurance events now. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Uh, and I think he's a he's a pretty uh, I would say a self confessed data nerd. Mm -hmm when it comes to training data and, and cycling data, which is why we wanted to speak to him today uh, about, you know, the role that, that that data may or may not have in terms of nutrition planning as well or, or providing feedback on things that you're changing with your nutrition. Yep. Awesome. Well, let's get into it. Let's do it. Stephen Lane, welcome to The Long Munch. How are things going? You're up in bright, we hear. Yeah, I'm living the dream. I'm just up here for a bit of a training camp this week. So I you know, rode a buffalo this morning in the in the humidity mm -hmm. and uh, now just getting some work done this afternoon. Yeah, awesome. And um, you're up there because of your work with the Bicycle Network? 
Yeah, so we've uh, on the I don't know what I am uh, for for three peaks or peaks challenge. I am the guy you see in all the YouTube videos and stuff. I write the training programs. Yeah. To give all the the um, participants a bit of guidance for a sixteen week proper training program leading up to it. So we've got a training camp up here this weekend, um, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and I thought I'd make the most of the opportunity and come up and. Uh, this is my favourite spot in the world up in Bright, so I'm just mm. going to hang out up here for a week. I was going to say, a terrible place to, to spend a week. <laughs> yeah. Horrible. Um, now, people uh, may know you for, for various different reasons. Obviously, you know, the Bicycle Network and the work that you're doing with Peaks is, is one of those. Um, you've obviously done a, a lot of coaching over the last few years, um, either with individual athletes. Um, one that probably springs to mind would be Bridie O'Donnell and her hour record that she set would be about five years ago now yep the anniversary of that was i think it was 2016 so it was five or six years ago but it was yep. just the other weekend i think it pops up in january so yep. yeah awesome uh, so time yeah, flies absolutely yeah um so people might know you for that or they might know you just as a cyclist yourself uh, particularly i guess in individual time trials where it seems to be your forte um, and you got the win in the Masters category at the Road Nationals for the time trial a few weeks ago. So congratulations for that. Yeah, thank you. There's a good story behind that one. Oh, there you go. Uh, we'll start with that. Um, well, maybe before we get into the Nationals, what sort of got you into, I guess, being so enthusiastic about riding TTs in the first place? Uh, I don't know exactly. Um, I did a little bit of triathlon beforehand, and, of course, the bike leg was my strong leg. Um, ended up just bike racing instead of triathlon mm. um i don't know i think i've always just liked time trials i want to say i think i was aero before everyone else got aero to be honest Ooh. so i always did pretty well yeah um me being the mad scientist i was always like hey there's a lot to this aerodynamic stuff um <laughs> so myself and a good friend shane miller who's gp llama who a lot of people probably know from youtube these days yeah um we yeah we were both just best mates and both love time trials so we just go around everywhere and race tts i just like the it's a controlled effort if it gets stuffed up it's your own fault it's not you know it's not a mass start so there's other things going on it's all just about working on key factors and getting it right on the day so i think it's just yeah something i enjoy doing yeah fair enough now you said there was a story behind the nationals the other week it's time to Spill the beans. Yeah, well, I was assuming your next your next point was about to say I've turned into this crazy ultra endurance guy as well. So mm. the last time trial I did before the Masters Nationals one the other week was a 52-hour straight-through ride without stopping. Mm. So I still call it a time trial because essentially it is. But um, yeah, I wanted to prove to myself and I think everybody else that I can still go fast. So I thought, well, Masters Nationals time trial for 19 kilometres is a good spot to to see if I've got eight weeks to, to get some um, speed about me again. Yeah, And I pulled it off, so I was a happy man. Yeah, absolutely. Bit of a different change of pace. Yeah, it's a different hurt. It really is. It's a different, you know, going ultra where it's, it's uh, you know, it's so much about nutrition. It's so much about mental approach to it and trying to tell yourself to be happy the whole time and, and, get through it um yeah I, I love going long going long is amazing it's 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 like a meditative state after about the first 10 hours you kind of get in this zone and you're in the moment um it's all off-road stuff that i do which i think is pretty special 
I think I'd go crazy if I was on the bitumen because it's just a little bit boring if you're on a flat road. But gravel's different where there's potholes and sand and you're picking the line you've got to ride on and you've, your brain's really working. You don't really fall asleep because you've got a lot to think about at any given time. So, mm. so that was going to be my next question was how you got into the, the ultra side of things. Uh, I don't know, actually. I saw the event. I What did I do? I bought a mountain bike and did one longish sort of mountain bike race, 160 Ks, and then saw this, the first mountain bike um, bike packing race I did was Vic Divide, which starts in Melbourne and finishes in Albury and goes up over Mount Buller through the National Park. It's like ten over 10,000 metres of vertical climbing in 560 kilometres. Um, I saw the record for that. And then I started doing a bit of course recon for it just to see what it was like over Buller. And I was riding the sections thinking, I'm riding these faster than the guys were in the race. I know I'm fresh and they've probably already done, you know, 200 Ks before they get to this point. It's like, I reckon there's a chance I could win this. Mm. So I jumped in and had a go. And yeah, I think the record was originally 45 hours for that 560 Ks. And I did it in 37 or 38, I think. Yeah, nice. So knocked a chunk off. So that was my um, that was my introduction to bike packing, and now I love it. So yeah, awesome. Okay, um, now we've talked about obviously your riding and, and a bit about your coaching. Um, your background's obviously in sports science as well, and you did your PhD over at RMIT, looking at the interactions between exercise and nutrition. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that involved? Yep, so I was lucky enough to, so I did my undergrad out at RMIT in Bandura. Uh, at the time, I think when I did my undergrad, I didn't actually know we had the one of the gurus of, of um, sort of sports science being John Hawley, who was the, mm. the professor there. Um, so I did my honours and then my PhD under him. Um, yep. And lucky enough, you know, his other half's Louise Burke, which most nutritionists know from the AIS and whatnot and all the research. Um, so I sort of stepped in, I had a pretty practical PhD where we were looking at, like Louise was at the, the Australian Institute of Sport, they'd want to apply something to athletes, and they're like, well, we better test this first. So of course, my PhD was pretty much based upon their, you know, crazy ideas as to is this actually going to work. Mm. So it kind of went down the line of um, carbohydrate availability. And if we get a greater training response when you're in a low carbohydrate state, so low muscle glycogen, yep. which comes down to doing, you know, two sessions a day. So the second session's low or doing a session at night time and then sleeping through the night without eating and then hopping up in the morning and doing another easier session. So we call that a sleep low protocol. Mm-hmm. So I was investigating with muscle biopsies and all sorts of things to see the, the, the muscle cellular response. Um, after that type of training um and then there was a couple of practical ones in there like a glucose mouth rinse and time trial performance in a fed or a fasted state um and then the other study was caffeine and beetroot juice in time trial performance so it was Mm. all very much nutrition based um and and does it improve performance or is there a way to to improve performance because we know in a low glycogen state performance is um is lowered and can we rescue some of that drop in intensity? Yep. 
Yeah, cool. And we've talked about a few of those topics in the podcast previously. Uh, we talked with, with Louise herself, actually, in our very first episode around, I guess, more sort of chronically low-carb or, or ketogenic-type diets. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked with uh, Dr. Sam Impey about, you know, fueling for long training sessions and whether you should deliberately withhold carbohydrate or not, depending on the session. Um, so, yeah, and, and Andy Jones, we spoke with uh, about the the Breaking 2 project late last year and, and touched a little bit on some of his research around beetroot juice as well. Yep. Um, but you're obviously a, a cycling coach and that's sort of your day job these days and you've done that for you know well over a decade now with uh, your business, Human Performance Technology or HP Tech. Um, yep. Now, is that more, I guess, doing sort of the helping athletes with training plans, that side of things, or is it a bit of testing, so sports science testing, or a sort of a combination of the two? Uh, I guess it is, it's definitely just, I'd call it programming these days. It's hard yep. to say, it's definitely coaching, but it's most of my athletes are remote. So mm. I've typically, I've been based in Melbourne, but I've got athletes all over the country and a few internationally as well. Yep. Um, so the core of it is writing a training program for them leading up to specific events. Um, within that program, I do testing to see, you know, where they're at at a given time point, um, before we do a training block, um, you know, with cycling, a lot of that testing is just power testing. So it's, it's either, you know, doing a a step test to figure out training zones. If I don't know an athlete at all, it's, it's a great snapshot of, of where, you know, where their power numbers are and then what I'm, you know, what we need to work on. Um, but otherwise, yeah, testing these days in cycling in the laboratory setting is becoming, I think, less and less um, necessary because with all the powered meters and things we have and Wahoo kickers and tax neos, you've pretty much got your own science laboratory at home mm. um, minus the some of the you know VO2 max and metabolic testing and lactates and stuff. But pretty much if you if you understand power numbers, which is what my job is, um, working with so many athletes for so long, um, I can nearly predict what lactate's doing and what VO2 max is doing, and you don't really need need to measure it per se. So. Yep, yep, fair enough. Um, so yeah, that was kind of getting into the the next. Um, I guess main question is all about training data. So I guess what type of exercise testing do you find is let's say, the most important for the athletes that you're working with? Um, and, um, and yeah, what sort of, I guess, what are the key insights you get from that testing that then helps you develop the um, training program? Um, yeah, well, as I mentioned, look, my main test that I always do with someone is is a step test, which is my good old Hawley Noakes. I forget what year it is now, but it's, it's a validated test. To, what year do you reckon? I think 2000 90, no, 1992. Yeah, is it that early? Yeah, I'm having to cite yeah, so it the paper. Hawley, I think that's Hawley Noakes peak power output predicts time trial performance and maximal oxygen cons- uptake or something like that. I think the, the paper is. Um, so it's two and a half minute stages, 25 watts each stage. And from that, I can pull out a lot of numbers. So the number you pop at is your typically, I think for males, that paper showed it was 97% accurate in predicting VO2 max. So we've got a formula we can use. Mm-hmm. Um, we've tried to do some 
um, studies with females as well. I think Ev Parr, um, who was also doing a PhD with myself, she's now at um, ACU, still under John, I think. Um, yeah. They were trying to get a cohort of females to see if they could come up with a similar um, algorithm to figure out VO2 max for females mm-hmm. from that same um, step test. Yep. But look, for me, it's pretty much all I do these days is that step test yep. um, to get a snapshot of overall physiology. Um, and then the rest of it is just power duration tests. So it is looking at, you know, one minute tests, essentially three or four minute tests, because that the one minute test looks at anaerobic power. Mm-hmm. The, the three or four minutes looks at um, your anaerobic capacity or that sort of starting to verge on um, that sort of VO2 max level. And then the good old standard 20-minute tests to look at, at aerobic capacity. Um, so they're sort of the three numbers that I'm always sort of using with athletes, depending upon what sort of events they're, they're looking at, whether it's criterium racing and that short punchy stuff is important, um, or it is the, the longer stuff where time, you know, 20 minutes, hill climbs and, and time trials. Um I use those numbers in conjunction with a lot of analysis programs these days like WKO. Uh, there's a new one called Inside, which does some pretty cool analysis. Um, and good old Golden Cheetah. So I, there's some numbers, there's some modelling data within those platforms now that really give me some insight into improvements in those sort of three areas. So with it anaerobic and aerobic mainly. Um uh yeah so in in short that's really all the testing i really do these days is just power duration testing to see where someone's at and i think that's the best um predictor of if someone can hit a pb then they're essentially going better than they've ever gone before and if they're not then why aren't they and what do we what sort of sessions do we need to be able to to target that specific duration Mm, yep yep and do you think we kind of can overcomplicate things with too much testing that's out there? I'd say yes. I think, to be honest, I think a lot of coaches in my position doing the ones I've seen, I have athletes come across to me from other coaches and I look at their you know, power duration curve and they say, oh, my threshold's 350 watts, and, but they haven't done anywhere near that for nearly 12 months. Mm. And, you know, as they haven't done 350 watts for even 20 minutes, let alone an hour. So I think in some cases there's, you know, depending upon coach, what, you know, their coach and, and the athlete, we need to test more often. I'm all for testing very often. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns into a good training session if you're, you know, redline and they're trying to go for a PB. Um, but there is a lot of data these days getting thrown in that I think athletes themselves are starting to get too reliant upon all of these whoop straps and heart rate variabilities um that's pretty complicated stuff as to really how to understand it i still even haven't wrapped my head around it to look at it and say hey you need a day off that number's showing us that you need to rest Mm -hmm. um and you know i know you guys spoke about this with with uh in previous podcasts but it's um it is simple things like rating of perceived exertion as well that we aren't using enough as well some athletes are so fixated on their Garmin or their Wahoo head unit that they're not listening to their brain and body enough to go, oh, yeah, this effort's not sustainable or it is sustainable. Um, 
So, yeah, so in short, there's a lot of things that are starting to get in the way. I think there's laboratory testing that can help, like lab testing, the only stuff I really recommend for, for athletes. And it really depends what level they're at if it's pertinent to them. So I still use DEXA scans and things. I guess you call that testing to some extent. Um, We do use, um, you know, blood profiles for looking at certain things if there's something wrong. If I can't figure out why this person's been feeling so bad for so long, then there's usually an underlying factor. Um, But then, you know, I've got athletes that go in for a VO2 max test. They pay a fortune for it and, they come back with numbers that I'm like, yeah, see, they're exactly the same ones as we've already got in there. Did you really need to pay $400 to do that? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, they people, some people enjoy that mm. doing that, that sort of testing. Yeah. Um, and look, I guess it's nice because it validates that I know what I'm doing without even testing those numbers. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And I guess looking a bit more specifically in terms of, you know, looking at the training data and lining that up with nutrition. Um, do you find yourself kind of making more use of that sort of data that you are collecting and then being able to provide your athletes with some insight into the nutrition? Nutrition's a hard one. Like technology and nutrition in the case of a coach like myself I think there's still very limited ways of of monitoring is someone getting nutrition right, just Mm -hmm. daily nutrition and also within an event. Um, I use, I guess the the only thing I've really used that's specific to it in the past is something like MyFitnessPal just as a calorie tracker. If you do it for a week or a couple of weeks, you actually really start to learn the caloric value that are in certain foods that you're eating regularly. And it's a big eye-opener sometimes to a lot of athletes. Like, you know, just choosing one product over another one might have double the calories Mm. versus the other one. Um, It's pretty hard for me as a coach um, to monitor what people are eating on a daily basis other than having some pretty in-depth conversations. Um, I've got athletes that tell me they've been feeling horrible for a week now um, and they can't get through the high-intensity sessions. And I've learned now to ask at the start of that conversation, you know, what are you eating? And a lot of the time they say, oh, yeah, I have been cutting, trying to cut carbs out. And it's it's a no-brainer that you can't do intensity without that carbohydrate. Um, So, you know, as a coach, I've learned that, you know, there's specific key questions to ask at the right times and and that's my best guidance as to if someone's meeting their nutritional needs, I guess. Mm. Um, in the technology base, like power meters are good because essentially power meter gives us X amount of kilojoules that someone uses, um, like it's mechanical work, but it actually translates to calories pretty well. Um, if I get this right, I hope I don't get this wrong, but we... Training Peaks uses, you know, you might go and do a three-hour ride and you might burn 2,000 kilojoules of work, total kilojoules of work. That essentially it equates to about 2,000 calories, I believe, just the way that the efficiency factor of, um, of mechanical work and things work. Um, so I can use that to see and to, to give an example to somebody to say, okay, that exercise session you burn X amount of calories, you need to have that on top of your, you know, resting metabolic rate that you need 
so you're on a on an energy balance at the end of the day. Um, and I always look at my relationship with athletes is an education process, and that's the sort of education I'm trying to help people with. Um, once athletes learn that and they know it themselves, then generally it's not something I need to touch on anymore. They kind of get the hang of it. Hmm. Um, others are really focused on it all the time. Like they love using that specific, um, you know, amount of work done in a session and then really fine tuning their own diet to make sure they match up. Um, you know, that's looking at things long-term, but within a training session as well, I guess some of the key factors I use for performance markers for a beginning athlete versus, or let's call them a novice athlete versus a very well-trained athlete. And I think um, a lot of top-end coaches are looking at things like this specific to cycling these days is someone can ride their threshold typically for, let's say, 60 minutes. Um, a lot of novice athletes would do you know, a really hard training session, let's say it's six by five minutes FTP, um, they can nail the numbers early in a training ride. <clears throat> but if they try to do it later in a training ride, they can't get anywhere near their actual FTP potential mm. within that training session. Yep. So what we start to look at is key determinants of performance in specific bike races, which might be how good are you at riding your threshold up a long climb after 2,000 calories of work or 2,000 kilojoules of work. Or for me, it might be I use tend to use the TSS data from um, from training peaks. So go and ride 200 TSS in a ride and then try and do your FTP efforts. And if you can't, we need to work on your muscular endurance. Yep. Have you ever sort of gone through that process and found that they can't hit their intervals or their FTP or whatever it is later on in a session and that sort of become a red flag that they're not fueling enough during the session? Uh, yeah, 100%. That's something that most beginner athletes always undereat they they probably they probably overeat in their in some rides like if someone's i've got beginner athletes that go and do a two-hour bike ride in the morning and they tell me they've eaten three gels in that two-hour ride in the morning they're essentially they follow our standard um, sports nutrition guidelines of 60 grams per hour every ride and mm. I'm all about, from my PhD, that metabolic flexibility and trying to find ways where as a cyclist, as an endurance athlete, want to be able to improve their fat oxidation to spare that muscle glycogen. Um, and in doing so by eating every single ride, even on a short you know, two-hour ride, they're really not riding in a, in a metabolic state that promotes that fat oxidation. So that's something um, I work with athletes with, you know, early on in the piece to see how they approach nutrition and riding and then yep. try and intervene with some exercise nutrient interactions to um, or interventions or periodization to try and work on the things they're doing wrong, <laughs> I suppose. Yep. And that, as I was saying before, that sort of, key amount of work and then being able to really do some high um, intensity efforts at the end of the ride really comes down to your metabolic flexibility. So how much fat versus carbohydrate do you use at a given intensity, like a given sub threshold intensity? And yeah, are you fueling enough? And most athletes in that case, in a, even in a race, like my national level riders, uh, they'll, they find it hard to eat enough. Um, 
not because they know not because they don't know they have to but when you're racing a bike it's pretty hard to reach into your pocket and stick something in your mouth and eat um you know when you've got guys and girls either side of you hustling for position so mm. eating is is the critical important point that um is most people's letdown i think in in longer endurance events anyway mm. and it's interesting you're talking there about um you know with particularly with with novice athletes you know, there's always that saying that people do their hard sessions too easy and their easy sessions too hard. And I think yeah. it can be the same with nutrition sometimes too. You know, you can sort of underfuel mm-hmm. at the key times when you really need that support from particularly carbohydrate and then, you know, overread on those times where it's maybe a rest day or an easy session where it really doesn't matter or might be advantageous to deliberately pull back a little bit. Yeah. And I think these days I try and, look, to be honest, I really think the big difference between, uh, a novice athlete or even someone who's, you know, they might be training 15 hours a week versus, which is, you know, quite a lot for most people versus an elite athlete that's probably doing anywhere between 20 and 30 hours a week. The difference is if you don't eat in a ride the first day and then you try and ride the second day, you feel pretty sluggish. Most novice novice athletes will go, oh, I'm feeling pretty bad today, so I didn't do as much exercise. Like I backed on, backed it off in that second day. Whereas the more you ride and the the more, you know, the higher level you get, you tend to just get it done anyway. And you kind of throw that perceived effort of being tired out the door. I think that that second day is a key day to actually get some adaptation. Um, but that comes down to that a novice athlete can probably go for a ride for maybe three hours without eating anything. Whereas like some of my guys will go ride five hours and barely eat anything at all. So that metabolic flexibility, that fat oxidation is, that's really a big factor between a, a, a beginning athlete and a, someone who's been doing it for a long time, <laughs> which all comes down to you probably be able to tell me more, but I'm at my main like that liver glycogen and muscle glycogen, like how much you store. And the more trained you are, the more you tend to have on board so you can last longer. But it's also, um, it blows athletes' minds when I explain to them the premise behind why you need to eat during exercise. And they, because they don't understand that the liver is actually storing glycogen. And when you eat, what you're doing is offsetting glycogen release or glucose release from the liver to maintain Mm. that blood glucose and you kind of explain to them that premise and then it clicks in their mind it's like oh okay so i'm eating so my liver doesn't have to release glycogen or glucose um and therefore the brain if the brain's monitoring those systems then it's that glucose will be there for later on at the end of the exercise intense uh, exercise bout so um yeah i love explaining that stuff to athletes because a lot of them just get and go oh that makes sense now and then they start actually practicing it properly it's amazing (laughs) that's what i was going to ask actually is do you find that i guess with some of the tools that you do have and that you can measure so say like your power meters and stuff do you find that the athletes actually um can be a bit more convinced then of like if you are talking to them about their nutrition you've got then that objective data to say or hey you know you're actually burning this amount of energy um and so like yeah and and this is what you're currently doing that's just not enough for what you're you're doing do you do you find they're a bit more convinced then 
Yeah, I think when I when I get it's not something I use a lot, but when I get to a sticky situation where we're trying to figure something out or the athlete's just doing something that's completely off the mark when it comes to nutrition, then that um, the power meter data, heart rate data, um, it really does give me a I guess a, a little bit of a scientific premise to go, hey, here's the reason possibly why you're feeling, you know not a hundred percent at the end of three hour ride um, or in a race. Like I've got lots of athletes that are on paper. They should be able to win a hill climb race, like a race that finishes with a hill climb, but they're just not quite something always happens up that hill where their Watts per kilo just aren't as mm -hmm. good as it needs to be. And sort of showing them like my examples and look, Australian nationals road race is a really good one where we race up Buninyong 16 mm. times and it's about a six-minute effort up that hill. That over the – remember when I was at uni for the first time and power meters would – well, when I was at uni years ago and power meters first started coming in, I was like, oh, I want to see the power data from this race because it's going to be really interesting. And that's where I actually started to learn that the race tends to split up probably about 80% of the way into it. Yep. Um, and then I sort of look at that how many kilojoules of work or what the average power is um, overall up until that point, you know, what's per kilo sense. And I can say, all right, you need to be doing this in training. You need to be able to do your FTP efforts up the hill um, at three hours, four hours into the race. Um, Cause I know exactly at what point everyone's probably about to get shelled in the race because there's X amount of kilojoules being spent. And at that point in time, they just can't do the intensity anymore. Yeah, absolutely. We were talking to Neil Vanderplug actually a couple of weeks ago, um, who obviously had quite a bit of success at that race uh, and the sort of efforts up there. But uh, this year he was going up there in a tandem, so it was a bit of a different kettle of fish. He, yeah, I saw that. He was the pilot for one of the blind yeah. guys. That was amazing. He actually went, if you know Fiskin Descent, I looked it up on Strava and I bombed down Fiskin really fast on the TT bike and Neil went down it um faster than i did on a tandem bike i don't know how they did it <laughs> yeah or you were saying the extra like the weight of the two riders and obviously the, the longer bike it just gives you so much momentum but there's lots of corners on that descent as well that's the thing i don't know how they cornered yeah. so well obviously a good pilot um yeah just moving away from like the, the single like one-off ride just thinking about i guess how things change over time you, you mentioned earlier like the really obvious scenario when an athlete comes to you and says oh i'm you know i'm just feeling really terrible over the last week or so and and you ask those questions about nutrition i guess that's a really obvious case where they've like they don't even need data to tell you that they're going terribly um but do you ever find from looking at athlete data or, or themselves looking at their own data that they can see more subtle changes that are sort of creeping up slowly? Uh, not, no, like it's always hard for me as a coach to figure out the chronic stuff. It's really hard to see those intricacies in, in the balance between what I'm seeing in training peaks, what they're telling me, and then all the missing points that are going on that are the stuff they're not telling me that they don't, not that they're holding it back. It's yeah. just, they don't realize it. Um, it's, I guess it's something I've just managed in day-to-day -day recovery, like programming mm. recovery. Um, I often write notes into all my training peak sessions saying, Hey, this week's been pretty big. 
make sure you focus on your your diet outside of riding a bike. It's just as important as what a, this training, you know, block is all about. Um, I I think I've done pretty well over the years, to be honest. I actually haven't had too many athletes that have really fallen into a heap because we're lacking in their, um, you know, nutritional component. I don't think that's something I've had to deal with too often, to be honest. Um, like I'm always very wary of the athletes like it's mostly the high level athletes but um you know of of are they eating enough because they think being a skinny cyclist is going to make them faster Mm. like that's something that i've really always got to think about um when i was in melbourne i'd if someone came around and i deemed the athlete appropriate i would always just do skin folds to start off with and just sort of do the sum of seven skin folds get a you know, some of them are already low twenties, and I think it's—I haven't thought about these numbers for a while, but it's—they're pretty skinny, mm. like it's low twenties, twenty-five or so, and they're still saying, "Oh, I need to lose a couple more kilos." I'm like, I don't think you've got much room for that. No. And so I think maybe for those athletes who are not working with a coach, that's maybe where tracking some of this data a bit more closely might come in handy in terms of giving them some of that feedback to sort of review what they're doing before it gets to that point of you know really struggling or or not achieving whatever the goal is whereas I guess when you're working with a coach and particularly as you said communication is the key there because if you don't tell the coach something they can't help you uh, or make adjustments as required Um, so message for everyone listening talk to your coaches tell them what's going on Um, but yeah if they don't have a coach and they don't have that um, I guess second set of eyes looking at data and, and seeing what's going on and uh, having that that two way conversation and the feedback and making adjustments, then that's maybe where tracking some of that data or, or just even looking at things like you know, as you said earlier, like I'm just struggling through those those intervals or my my session RPEs for the same kind of sessions are getting higher and higher. The sessions are becoming harder. Why is that kind of thing can then lead you to that yeah. that sort of thought process to include in that? Is it to do with you know, what I'm doing nutrition-wise or is it that my overall training load has sort of crept up over the last month or so and I haven't compensated on the nutrition front? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is there, I guess, any certain types of data that's commonly associated with nutrition that you find is really not that helpful um, and you don't tend to pay too much attention to it? I don't I don't even think there is that I don't like I just don't deal with much data that's based around nutrition to be honest like in yep. as a coach myself I'm just I don't see that data I've got your your overall overall well-being score at you know yeah. on training peaks we've got little smiley faces and things like that um that could be anything that could be me overtraining them it could be they're sick they're busy at yep. work so it doesn't really dial it down to nutrition um but you know I guess I my only tools I've got for nutrition is to ask questions to be honest there's not many things uh, the data I look at on a daily basis that give me an insight into you know what they eat on the bike and off the bike sadly I think there's a lot of things now that are, are coming in that I'd love to have a play with like these continuous blood glucose monitors they're starting to use in um they i think they were banned by the uci weren't they the, yeah yep. um they're not allowed to be used in competition yep. at least i think in competition yeah mm. um mm. like i'd love to have a play with it i'm skeptical about them at the moment like i 
I don't see the benefit of monitoring blood glucose mm-hmm. and how it's going to be a game changer within a race. Um, I guess you see small things. I'd love to be able to have one that monitors continuously having free fatty acids in the blood would be a great one. Um, you sort of need the combination of carb of the glucose and you need the fats to see, you know, if you're in that right training zone. Um, but yeah, there's things like that, that I think we will later on down the track a little bit. Um, it might be some data for me to actually start monitoring things like that and monitoring nutrition on the bike to see if people are going, you know, hypoglycemic because they're not eating. Um, but to be, yeah, to be honest, that's, there's not many others I'm actually aware of that could help me. You guys could probably help me. What is, what is out there? <laughs> there's not necessarily a heap and there's some in progress um, and there's glitches in all. But I guess one of the common things I can see is when athletes use um, just as a tracking thing. So they'll use my fitness pal or uh, my easy diet diary or one of those apps um, and they they don't understand it. So um, number one, they they may not actually know how to enter it in or they may not know that they're using an app that is, I don't know, American-based or whatever and they haven't realised what they're using there. And then often they they might, like you say, you know, they want to lose weight. And so always when you're going into those apps, it asks you, you know, like what's your weight, you know, height etc and then it gives you what you should be getting in and they rely on that so much and then they don't think about the exercise that they're doing yeah yeah. um so that i find yeah that that's a big issue um with with individuals using those apps is and with any um even testing procedure like you said um before like um, there's no point in going to do a VO2 max test or a test if they don't understand it. Like I often see body composition and skin fold testing being done a lot in um, individuals or clubs, um, but then there's no education to the athlete in what that actually means. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think from the nutrition apps perspective and any testing method it's also the education can often be missing yeah and i I said that before where you know Mm. i take an athlete on and i try and educate them into what normal numbers are Mm. so for skin folds if i give them a report it's got a breakdown of all the athletes i've tested and i can't, can't remember where i pinched it from but anyway there's a sort of a scale of what's normal you know elite versus you know sedentary sort of scale and I try to say look you're here but that doesn't necessarily mean that's Mm. right or wrong like Mm -hmm. you know everyone's individual variation yeah exactly um yeah so I guess yeah having someone like myself and there's a look there's a lot of coaches out there that don't have a science background there's a lot of coaches out there cycling coaches specifically that we're just athletes in the past and they don't understand the premise behind it. So mm. I think I'm in a unique situation where I'm a scientist, a coach and an athlete. And I think that's mm. a pretty good trio to actually really impart some knowledge as to how and why we do things um, for the, you know, for an athlete to learn. So, yeah. 
So, I mean, we talked about a couple of things there that would be useful to potentially know, and, and we asked Trent that question last week as well in terms of, you know, if you had a magic wand and you could create any kind of new wearable device or training monitor app that collected subjective data, whatever, are there any other things that if you had a, a magic wand you'd create tomorrow that you'd love to be able to measure for people that might help some of this stuff? Some of the metabolic stuff would re- be really nice to be able to monitor. Oh, yeah, the one mm. I was thinking of I would love mm-hmm. to be able to measure in real time is muscle glycogen. It would be great to be able to know muscle glycogen content resting and in exercise um, up on your yeah. Garmin screen saying, hey, your fuel tank's at 50%. <laughs> like, battery meter. Yeah, like it, it'd be it'd be great just knowing and, and then yeah. trying to, when you're in a race, see that you're burning matches and using that glycogen. Like that would be great. Um, that was my favourite thing to measure during my PhD and the most yeah. fascinating thing, taking biopsies and seeing muscle glycogen levels. Um, that just blew me away just to see, you know, rates of glycogen use, how low it can get, how super compensated it can get. Um, that in parallel to um, the free fatty acids in the blood during a, an endurance exercise bout and seeing them rise um, as in during a steady state exercise bout to me was always fascinating to mm-hmm. see from rest, you know, how high that can actually get. Um, and really to me, it explained a lot of how I felt at the end of a long endurance bike ride where I could maintain this sort of moderate to high intensity below threshold, but it, my breathing didn't really relate to to the intensity I was doing. I think it was because I was becoming more dependent. Or I could use more of that fat um, um, as opposed to carbohydrate. Um, and it needs more oxygen, so your breathing rate goes up a bit. Yeah. So it was, I guess the yeah, it was just interesting. So that's for me as a scientist, they'd probably be the two main things I'd love to be able to. I don't know if that'd work for the everyday athlete, but it's. Um, but it'd be something I'd love to see pop up on the garden screen one day. Yeah, yeah. And I know there was a company that tried to create sort of an ultrasound technique to measure muscle glycogen without having to stick biopsy needles into people. But yeah, I, don't think I it... reckon I saw that pop up. That yeah. was along the lines of all the muscle oxygenation stuff and things as well that mm. to show, you know, how much oxygen is actually in the muscle. And I don't – I think the validity and reliability of it was so far out that it never really Correct. picked up. Exactly, and and even then you could only do it at rest. So yeah. uh, I think it was around things like looking at whether people were, well, the idea behind it was you know looking at whether people were adequately fueled going into particular sessions or races or whatever it was yeah. to look at whether their nutrition strategy was working the way it was intended. Um, but yeah, as you said, the validity was the issue, and um, I think a few studies came along showing that it didn't really correlate very well with the biopsy measured glycogen and it's kind of yeah. faded faded away from there yeah yep. sadly yep absolutely one day someone will invent something i'm sure yeah we'll have it all soon yeah um <laughs> things we've we've got a lot of technology coming into sport that we didn't have even five years ago so yeah we'll we'll learn how to someone will learn how to measure it soon All right, well, we're going to finish off now with our bonus round where we find out a little bit more about you, Stephen, outside of uh, riding and glycogen and data collection and all that sort of thing. So our first question, if you could go back to the end of high school and start again down a completely different career path, 
what do you reckon you'd do? Oh, that's hard, mate, because I love doing what I do. I actually don't want to do anything else. I've got, mm. as a cycling coach, I've got the best job. Like I work when I want to work. I get to ride a bike. If I, if I was going to do something, if I was going to go back to the st- to the end of high school, I should probably go back to the start of high school because funnily enough, I ended up with a PhD, but my VCE yep. scores were pretty average, very well below average, to be honest. I didn't apply myself at high school um, until I found what I loved doing, which was sports science, and then I excelled at it. So um, I don't know. I probably would have been a farmer if I was if I went down the wrong path because I grew up yep. on a farm and and if I hadn't have escaped the country to the city, I'd probably, yeah, be a farmer these days. There you go. What what sort of farming? Oh, mum and dad just lived in the country. Not necessarily farming. We used to, dad had a weed and vermin control company and I worked for him for a couple of years. So yep. if I didn't find my passion for sport and science, I probably would have been managing <laughs> a, managing Barongarook weed and vermin control right now. There you go. <laughs> Fair enough. Um What's a sport you've always wanted to try but you haven't had the chance? Uh, I think the one thing I I should probably do but now I feel like I'm too old to go try is actually skiing. I've never actually been to the snow and been skiing. I think okay. I need to give that a go at some point. Um, I'm, I've always been a skinny little fella who hates the cold. So I've always gone, I'm not going to the snow, it's freezing, but I know that uh, you're warm, you're rugged up and it's not that cold. You've had athletes ride up mountains when there's snow banks on either yeah. side of Europe, but you never had the chance to do that yourself? Yeah, well, funnily enough, no. I've uh, I've come to Bright so many times, but it's always been when there's no snow. Mm, there you go. <laughs> um, Favourite moment from the Tokyo Olympics or Paralympics? Uh, oh, it'd probably have to be... Look, I'm good friends with all the the boys that were in the team pursuit that had that pretty nasty accident with the mishap mm. with the broken handlebars. It was still nice to see them get a medal after that. I guess we had pretty high hopes going into it that they'd, you know, hopefully come away with a win. So I think when I saw them actually on the podium and they all still looked pretty happy, that was a nice moment. I guess yeah. the other one, I guess at the Paralympics, I'm good mates with Alistair Donahue. So seeing him do pretty well was it's nice to see someone you know and you hang around with um, with their head on tally after a race about to go to a podium. So um, hmm. yeah, I think they're probably my two main moments. I'm I'm sadly I can't say another sport that I watched where I had a moment <laughs> because I'm such a straightforward cycling only athlete that that I just watch the cycling and that's it. Yeah, no, fair enough. Now we had Al on the podcast actually on the night of the opening ceremony of the Paralympics. Oh, really? Yeah, we were talking to him and then I looked at the calendar. I'm like, hang on, isn't the opening ceremony on? And he's like, oh, yeah, it's on the background on the TV <laughs> from his hotel in Izu. Um, uh, one place you've always wanted to ride but never had the chance? Uh, well, I've ridden most of the fancy climbs in Europe, so that kind of I've, I've done all the well-known ones. I think the... The place I want to go now is go ride the the tour the race that's tour divide. So it goes from Banff yeah. in um, Canada down to Antelope Wells in New Mexico. So wow. um, that I think it's the Great Dividing Trail or whatever they have there. That's something I'd like to go do. So sort of along the Rockies. Yep, pretty much just straight down that big ridge down the center of the of the US. Pretty much. Um, mm. 
that's uh, something on the cards for me to either go race the Tour Divide or just to go ride it and see it. So, um, yeah. yeah, when I when I get a chance to get over there, I'll be doing that at some point. Awesome. How many Ks is that? Oh, good question. Oh, they do it in miles. I think it's a bit over 2,000 miles, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a long way. <laughs> yeah. So the winners, so Mike Hall, the, the, the ultra-endurance well-known cyclist, um, He's got the record of, I think it's 13 day, like high 13, so 13 days, nearly 14 days, so two weeks essentially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. I reckon I can beat that. Yep. Um, and then finally, do you live by any piece of advice or motto? Uh, for, not really. As much as I'm a, as much as I've done a, PhD in philosophy I think running by anything I think for me is don't work too hard play play a little bit more yeah I think that's just me in practice in life at the moment or in general that's summarized with your van yeah just enjoy just enjoy life and and get out and do stuff and don't work uh nine to five or even more than that just try and get out and enjoy it I think um yeah that'd be me rather than the other way around yeah exactly yeah. Yep. It's not all about awesome. money. It's about having fun. So. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time, Stephen. It's been great to catch up with you. It's been a few years, I think, since I caught up with you last. But, um, yeah, good to hear about what you're doing now and, and also about how we can use or, or, in some cases, not use some of that data that we might collect in training uh, and its relevance or not to nutrition. So thanks so much for your time. No worries at all. I hope I gave all the listeners at least something to take home from that. Um, whether yeah. it's the way a coach does things or sadly there's not too many devices we can use but hopefully there was something in there yep awesome thanks awesome thanks for the chat uh yeah um thank you very much to to Stephen, and um i think it, it's really good because um it sounds like now he has kind of maybe stepped away a bit from you know the the lab sort of world um and is now more on the field Mm. um which i think a lot of our listeners it it will relate to them um because he's you know thinking about well what are the tools that he now has um that can be applied and um are they just as good as what he can kind of well similar um tell a similar story to what he can get in the lab so anyway I'm going to leave it to our uh, summary guru, Dr. Our, to um, just give us some key messages of, of what we've taken home from probably Trent and um, and Stephen. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I think I'll keep this one fairly brief because we summarised, I think, things pretty well after last week's episode with Trent. Um, and I think ultimately um, there is some training-related data. I mean, it's it's routinely collected anyway that may add some value in terms of I guess, either informing or providing feedback around your nutrition. Um, but in a lot of cases, it's not very specific. So it's it might be a matter of saying, okay, well, you know, I can see that my my session RPEs, uh, you know, are going up. So the sessions are getting harder, even though the actual session itself, you know, the TSS value, the training stress score, um, or some other metric there um, is more or less the same. So the session should feel the same, but they're actually getting harder. Why is that the case? Uh, and as Stephen said, like there's obviously lots of different reasons that could be. It could be sleep. It could be um, that they're, they're being overtrained. 
whatever it is. But nutrition and underfueling is certainly one of those. So that can provide some feedback or at least to have some reflection of, you know, is my nutrition related to this? Or if I feel better, could I tolerate a greater training load and not feel you know, like I'm getting progressively run down. Um, as you said, though, I guess in some cases it's so obvious that you don't really need the data to tell you that you're going badly. You, you feel it. Um, but if it's a little bit more subtle, then maybe the data might be helpful in, in those cases. Um, as you said, like if you've got a power meter on a bike, um, you can then get some idea of the, um, the total work done, and that gives you an idea of sort of your energy needs, like your total calorie requirements and um I think I said at the end of last week, if you go, if you've got training peaks, it might be different on other platforms. Uh, if you've got the desktop version of the app open with the calendar and all your training sessions, if you go to the far right, that column at the end is the weekly summary and it has the work done in there. And that could be a really nice way just over progressive weeks to see how your overall energy needs are going up or down over time or if they're staying you know, relatively consistent. And if you notice that they're starting to slowly creep up over time, that might be again to think, oh, do I need to eat a bit more? Or if they're going down, conversely, you know, I need to be careful that I'm not overfueling or overeating at times as well. So that can be helpful um, sometimes, I think, from that perspective. And I think either the work done or the TSS, um, and, and TSS has kind of their similar metrics with different acronyms in other platforms. Um, I think it can be useful sometimes too, because when training programs change up, you've got different combinations of duration and intensity. It's sometimes hard to know, okay, was that short, hard session more um, energy consuming compared to a really long, slow session? So, you know, you could go out for a, a two-hour run, let's say, or you could go and do like a 45-minute interval session, your hill repeats or something. Like, obviously, the fatigue that you feel from those is quite different. They're, they're you know, stressing the body in quite different ways. But just in terms of the sheer calorie needs, like which one – is actually having more, um, which one actually needs more calories or is going to take more out of you in terms of needing to be adequately fueled for it. That's where some of that data can be actually quite helpful to compare across different weeks where there might be different emphasis in training um, or just to look across the summary of the total week where you've got a combination of these sessions in there as well. Um, so I think that can be useful sometimes as well. Um, we didn't really touch on the wearables in this session. Uh, we're going to do another whole podcast more specific to wearables uh, in the future. Um, but yeah, that's obviously another area um, where you've got to be really careful about you know how well validated those are, how reliable they are at, at capturing that data. Um, so just something to, to bear in mind. Uh, and, and the same goes with, with apps, you know, food, food loggers and, and things like that as well, is that we know that there's an inherent level of error in logging your food, whether it's on a piece of paper or in a, in a fancy app, um, you're still going to have that, that error come into it as well. Um, so I, I think they're probably the, the main things. So yes, I think overall, yes, training data may be helpful from a nutrition point of view, either to inform what you need to do or to provide feedback on a change that you've made, you know, what effect that has had, uh, but bearing in mind that there could be other reasons behind those changes that you're seeing. And so you need to think about it in that total context and, you know, nutrition's in that picture, but it's not the entire picture. Yeah. Yeah. Good one. Um, and uh, I think also um, you have been busy at work while I've been um, getting stressed about final thesis stuff. 
Um, you've done some really great um, infographics on this hour, which, um, yeah, our listeners can also go to and, um, and, and have a look at. Yep. So next episode, 31A and Alan, we have had a bit of a wait for this one. Yeah, yeah, this is a request we had. Um, I'll have to go back and look up uh, who the listener was, um, mm. but we'll, we'll definitely give them the credit next week for it. I just can't remember off the top of my head who it was. Mm. Um, around the nutritional needs for, for junior and adolescent athletes um, and how that might be different to adults. So our question is, how are nutritional needs of junior athletes different to adults? Uh, and it's going to be our first re- repeat guest, return guest, is Professor Ben Desbro. He was an associate professor last time, but he's a full professor now. Uh, and he uh, was the, the main author on the Sports Dietitians Australia position statement on nutrition for adolescent athletes. So he's spent a lot of time thinking about this area and pulling together all the science in it. So we're going to hear from him next week. So if you've got um, kids out there, whether it's you know eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds, right through to teenagers, um, that are competing in running, cycling, or triathlon at any level, um, this will be a great episode to have a listen to in terms of how the needs of those particular young athletes might be different to what it is for older athletes. Yeah, I thought I was just trying to find who that person was that asked, and I thought it might have been Lionel. Was it? No, I think it might be Basil. Was it Basil? Yeah, Basil, that's it. Thank you. Yes, correct. Yeah, I just, yep. just remembered. Yeah, good one. So there you go. Um, we have finally gotten onto it. Um, and yeah, really, um, this is, I know it's it's actually something that some runners I know um, also do struggle with with the um, kids um, as well. So I, I, I know this is going to be a really valuable um, episode. So uh, yeah, if, um, if you are liking our episodes, uh, which we hope you are, uh, we would love you to subscribe um to us and also yeah let your your friends know as well or you know like we say if you are at the coffee table or in your training session um and you hear someone asking a question and you're like huh I actually know where I could refer them on to the long lunch have actually answered that question why don't I just uh you know uh let them know um, we would absolutely love for you to do that because our our aim out of this is is really to to help educate um, and uh, yeah if the more people spreading the word um, then yeah hopefully the better information we can get out there. Yeah, absolutely. And just on that subscription thing that you just mentioned, Steph. So um, a lot of the podcast platforms have subscription. Uh, or the ability to subscribe to a podcast. So Spotify does, Google Podcast does, Podbean does. Can't remember if Apple Podcasts do or not. But anyway, you can hit subscribe and it just notifies you when the next episode is available, ready to go. Um, although it's always Thursdays, which I think a lot of people are aware of these days. But um, yeah, it just delivers it there ready for you to go. Yeah, yep. Awesome. All right. Well, we will let our listeners go. Thank you once again for listening to us and um yeah, have a have a great rest of your week. Yep. See everyone next week. See ya.